an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 602. I am recording this intro on Sunday, November 23rd, which is my birthday. The day I uh, escaped my mother's womb in a furious rage, ready to take on the world, and then not really get my shit together until my early 30s. But uh, I just want to say thank you so much for all of the well wishes and it's everyone's been super nice to me, which uh, I like this side of the internet. Uh, it's good. I I had a wonderful birthday weekend. Uh, had a bowling party, of course. There was karaoke, and a lot of amazing, super sweet friends came to that. And then took a handful of people to Disneyland yesterday. Uh, got to take a weird, awkward prom pic with Mickey, where it looks like he's kind of inside me but it's great because it's Disneyland and uh, so 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 much fun and then I've, I worked on my actual birthday on Talking Dead which uh, was also great so it was a really very fortunate weekend and you know after what happened a year ago at this exact time with my dad um, I was uh, very nervous going into this time of year but uh, with amazing friends and support uh, from them and from you guys on social media I, I cannot thank you enough um, you made it actually a lovely weekend and, and really helped me get through it. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, a couple stand-up-y things to announce. I will be at Cobbs in San Francisco December 11th, 12th, and 13th. And uh, my pal Blaine Capatch will be coming up and, and opening for me. And then start, that'll be getting ready for starting January 16th, the Fun Comfortable Tour, which is my stand-up tour which starts um, in uh, Seattle. And so it's it'll go through May. You know, I'll be doing every weekend that I can get out on the road with my work schedule. But the cities are Portland, Seattle, Denver, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Madison, Wisconsin, Columbus, Ohio, Atlanta, New York, Milwaukee, and a few more cities that have not been added just yet but will be. So go to funcomfortabletour.com uh, and get tickets and info for that. This episode of the podcast is John Cleese, who, I think if you know anything about me, I think you probably would know what that would mean to me. Uh, also contributed to a fantastic birthday week of getting to sit down and talk to Mr. Cleese, who, I mean, I had no idea what to expect, and I didn't want to fuck it up, and he made it very easy to not fuck it up. Um, such a warm, lovely, 
you know, not surprisingly articulate gentleman uh, who was very open and uh, super, super, super cool to us. Uh, Matt and Jonah actually did get to come to this one, too. John has an autobiography out now called So Anyway, uh, which is a fantastic book. I mean, if you have any, I mean, whether you're a Python fan or not, if, if you are, it will give you an incredible amount of insight into his personality and his character. And of course, he's such a wonderful writer. So the book is it's funny, but serious and, and, and very enlightening. And, uh, and if you don't know Python, um, then it's still a, just a very well-written autobiography of an of a, in, incredibly interesting man. So uh, I am very honored to say the following words. The Nerds Podcast number 602 with Sir John Cleese. It, I don't think he's technically knighted, but uh, I'm fucking knighting him. Take that, England. M- monarchy. Now entering Nerdist.com. Pitch in when he drops uh, some silence on us. Uh, this right. is. Uh, <laughs> I'm here to be taller than you. Good. Uh, who does what? Hello. I'm the producer. Katie uh, produces the show. Producer. Oh, producer. Yes. And I uh, generally host the show. These guys co-host the show with me, and then you and Jonah, being uh, height matches, are going to wrestle. Oh. Uh-huh. So that's why we're in this room. <laughs> Very good. Uh, that's good. So yeah. we would put you in the comfortable chair if you would All like. Right. So you want me to answer questions to you off camera? No. <laughs> There's no camera. No camera. That we're aware of. Oh, excellent. Good. But who knows what they do with the four seasons, though? Well, you see, well, the trouble is, well, the, the schedule is such a killer. Of course. That uh, I'm usually trying to step out four hours ahead. Yes. Meanwhile, Penny Simon is, is emailing Howard from New York asking me what sort of coffee I want in Miami. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Did you make a decision? Yeah, not yet. Okay, good. <laughs> I thought we could wait to Miami. We so can... we're just talking now. Where would you allow me to sit? I'm, if I sit back in this chair, it will catch it. Too far from the microphone. No, no, you should be comfortable. You should be comfortable. Sure. And this is basically, you can say whatever you want. There are no content restrictions. And, right. and it's it's not as much an interrogation as just a conversation. That's much nicer. Yeah, we're just much having more a interest. We're just so having what's a chat. The, um, what's the audience? The audience is uh, essentially nerd folk, ages 15 to 60. Uh, oh, it's 60. Yeah. It's <laughs> They're not all 25. They're not all 25. Uh, no, no. Okay. There's a, there's a lot of 25-year-olds in there, but uh, but also a lot of 35, 45. 50. I mean, it's... Right. It's, so isn't it the same as a geek? Ah, that's a good question. I think it's, uh, I think it's a colloquial. It's, I think it's regional. When I grew oh. up, we said nerd, or at least that's what was said at me. Right. Uh, and but there's a lot of debate, and some people think that geeks are more pop culture obsessed, and some people think that that nerds are more technology obsessed. Um, oh, I think ultimately everyone's saying the same thing. But if you ask 
who, if you ask a side, however they identify, they will say the other is the weaker class. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's, that's the delineation. That's the delineation. And you're not going to ask me questions about pop culture, are you? No, we're not going to quiz you about nothing, pop culture. Nothing about it at all, except for the Kesha quiz. That's the only time. Yeah. <laughs> the what? <laughs> the Kesha quiz. We're going to ask you what's your favorite Taylor Swift songs, and then we're going to just go down there, and then who's the dreamiest One Direction kid? So that'll be the first forty minutes, okay. and, then, and then we'll talk about the book for five. Right. But, uh, no, it's not, I mean, you know, the, the fun thing about doing this is that we just get to know people yeah, and yeah, what they're right. like and, yeah, yeah, you know, and, uh, it, I mean, obviously for someone like you, were you, well, you're on a 15 city book tour, is that correct? Something like that? Yeah, I think 15 it's 15 in 20 days, I think it was. How do you find this process? Is it, is it? Kind of, I mean, do you enjoy it at all, or is it just like, okay, now I just got to go into answer questions a million times mode? Well, I tell you, I, it's the travel that's the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I flew eight times in ten days, and I'm six, four and a half. Um, and you know uh, that airplane seats get smaller every year. And frankly, being on a plane now is a rather miserable experience. I just can't wait to get off it and stretch and feel good again. So if the travel is much the worse, then you get a little tired mentally. Um, last night, two or three times in front of an audience in San Diego, I was about to tell a story. And I had to think quickly, wait a moment, did I tell this last night or did I tell it 20 minutes ago? And you get a little bit scrambled yeah. like that. The yeah. worst of all is the, is the junkets, the film junkets, sure. where people come in, you sit in the same chair, and the interviewer arrives, and air is replaced every four and a half minutes. And you can do about 20 or 30 of them, but after that, you just get scrambled. You can't remember what you just said or whether you said it five minutes ago. So it's a kind of it's a process of being worn down a bit. But the mm-hmm. actual interviews, both the uh, interviews with the uh, radio, television, but especially radio, which is always more interesting, um, and also the the shows that I do in the evening, where a, a host comes and talks to me. He's usually a sort of local radio guy, something like that, and he asks me questions. Those are interesting and fun because we make the audience laugh, and that's always we always feel nice when you do that. So it's okay, but from going 40 years ago, and I hated this more than anything else, <laughs> to now the only problem is the tiredness. Sure. What, what was different about it 40 years ago? I hated it, because I was, uh, I think, emotionally very unresolved, and I was therefore my unconscious was a sort of on guard, lest I should say something, I didn't know what, that would give away something that I didn't want. Uh, you, you, you see this a lot when people become very self-conscious, and self-consciousness is a sort of feeling of editing everything you're saying in advance in case it doesn't meet approval. Sure. And kills any kind of spontaneity. And do you think you got better with that because of um, just wisdom, age, or years of therapy? Or what I do you think, think made I you... Think, yeah, well, I think you, therapy helps because the more you know about yourself, the less you have this feeling of something lurking down there that you better not reveal. Um, that's one thing. The other is simple practice. Like anything else, you get better at it with practice. And then as you get older, you care less what people think about you. Sure. You really do, which is a huge release. So you're not so guarded about what you say. So probably more fun, as it were, because it's more spontaneity. So at 75, do you feel like you know yourself better now, or do you still feel like 
you know, I, 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 there's so many things I don't understand. Well, both. <laughs> I do know myself very, very much better, but I still realise there are just oceans of things about myself that I don't understand. Like I noticed the last week or two, I was thinking more about dying, just because I'm 75. You know, when you wake up, as I did two weeks ago, and you're three quarters of a century old, you realise you've not got another 50 years. You see what I mean? So I found myself thinking about it, and I thought, now, why am I not frightened about it? Now, maybe that's just a cover-up. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm terrified deep down, but I just noticed at the moment that I think when I get the phone call, I'm not going to be in a complete panic. I think that will be very sad, because I've finally married extremely happily really in love with some of the first time which is nice to get to in your 70s and I'd like as much of that as I can but the actual idea of dying doesn't frighten me you see I just mm-hmm. don't want it yet yeah Woody I think Allen if, said, if I humans don't... really thought about it and hmm? di- if humans really thought about dying yeah. and just processed it the way you think they should process it you would walk by screaming people constantly yeah, <laughs> just uh, terrified <laughs> It's terrifying to think that you lose everything. The moment you die, you lose all your friends. You see, imagine if somebody came in and said, all your friends have been killed. You you see what I mean? You do lose everything. So I guess that there's some kind of phoniness about this calm I have about it at the moment. On the other hand, I've been thinking about it over the years. It's always something because I'm interested in religious not religious, spiritual ideas. And, you know, the Dalai Lama contemplates his own death, I think, six times every morning. And I think the more you show think off. about it, you see what... <laughs> well, he does show off. <laughs> what a showboat. Yes. I get it, Lama. <laughs> You're enlightened. Yeah, I did meet him several times, and he really is on a different level. Yeah. There's about three people I've met in my life that I would say that about. And that, that, I don't think there's any question. Some people are just on a higher level than others. Who were the other two? The other was a, a guy called Sogyal Rinpoche. He was also a Tibetan Buddhist. And the other was a guy called... Lord, what was his name? He used to run the Gurdjieff movement in San Fran- from San Francisco. Oh, okay. And I thought there was something about him. Uh, I had an experience in his presence, which I know that he caused, which is quite unlike anything I'd ever had before. And I think there's just a few people around who know just a lot more. Yeah. But not many. Um, so it's it's funny. It's I'm, in- I'm worried because she just seems unhappy about this. <laughs> oh, oh, it's fine. She's actually. just fitzing and fudging. Oh. Checking the levels. That's all. She's all just right. making we'll sure that we all sound good. We'll just make sure that the level check. Oh, it's fine. It's okay, fine. good. Did you get my hilarious joke about everyone dying? We're yes. gonna cut yes. that out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, because you know, talking about being more comfortable with yourself, and then knowing. Are we that- going again? Because I don't want to go until she's happy. We're not. We're, we're not. We, we didn't stop. Recording. She was no. recording the entire oh, yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, do we have the Katie stamp of approval? Yes. Okay. Good. Sorry. Um, okay. We don't do nothing without this one. But to uh, to say that you're more comfortable with yourself now and that you're less guarded because you just don't care as much. I mean, this book. If you don't care so much, and you do know yourself better. And uh, you know, if somebody says to me, uh, "Well, you were angry or envious," I'll probably say, "Yes, I remember that occasion. I was. It was. I don't have to cover it up." You right. See what I mean, because that's what human beings are. And so, so much of the time, people start to spend their spend their time trying to pretend they're some kind of perfect creature, and it's ludicrous, you know. And you get very boring interviews as a result. Well, also, you know, the the book your book starts out sort of delving into very personal 
family stuff. Well, I think that's what an autobiography is about, isn't it? Of course. If it isn't, if that isn't in there, you're not writing a proper one, I think. Yeah. But is there? But what's the what's the what's the Python blessing and curse between? Hey, I'm a you know I'm a guy, and this was a this was a this was a period of my life. Mm. I've done more things that were not that. People mm. always want to talk about that. I'm sure they want to scream quotes at you all the time. Well, and so- I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the truth is that I suddenly realized this at the O2 that I really like the Python fans. They're not rude and insistent and boring. They're fun and they're polite and they're playful. And, and conversations with them are nearly always enjoyable. So that uh, the only problem about fans is if there's too many of them in a day. Mm-hmm. Because you have slightly similar conversations with them all. And if that happens three times a day, it's not a problem. If it happens 30 times a day, you kind of feel, how do I get on with my life? So that's the only problem, the sheer profusion of them. But they're nice people to talk to, and they're often very amusing. And if they're a little bit embarrassed and they don't know what to say, or they say, nee, 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 I'm, not, <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. But I smile and nod. And then after a few moments, that sort of strange sense of awe uh, slips away and we have a bit of a proper conversation. Is it fair to say that um, as part of British culture that it's that you can be very uncomfortable when people are lavishing attention on you and you kind of just don't, yeah. you get very guarded and protected? Is that there That's must be... right. Yes, I think the, the English culture at least used to be, I'm not sure about it now, it used to be much more introverted than the American culture. And uh, I read a wonderful book recently by a woman called Susan Cain, and it's called Quiet. And I think anyone who's at all introverted, at all, because it's not its not you're either introverted or extroverted, there's a spectrum, you know what I mean. There's a few people at one end who probably become politicians and the people on the other end who become librarians or Swedish or something like that. <laughs> In the in the middle, there's this vast. And I'm on the introverted side, but I can function perfectly well uh, in an extroverted way. But at the end of a day where I've been extroverted a lot, I need some quiet time on my own. And this book is absolutely marvelous about that and points out it's quite difficult in America having an introverted side. It used not to be, but uh, a few years ago, beginning with Dale Carnegie, she says this sort of ideal American personality seemed to become more like a sort of brush salesman, you know, Mm. hearty and extrovert and very straightforward and not particularly thoughtful or introspective. And since that happened, I think it's harder in America America for people to be introverted if that's their basic nature. And I just recommend the book because it really helped me in a normal start. And it's quite nice at 74 to read a book that helps you a lot. Yeah. And do you did was that in advance of writing this book? Do you feel like that your book is was helpful for you or therapeutic for you in any way to get well, it all I out? I think I've done so much therapy. I did have a very difficult relationship with my mother for the simple reason that I don't think she was really capable of emotional empathy. Mm-hmm. She's very good at running the house and you know making sure the clothes were clean and. Uh, there were no holes in the clothes, all that stuff. You know, she's very, very good at. But she was a very anxious and quite depressed person. And I think at any given moment, she was thinking about something that made her anxious or feeling a little bit sad and not knowing what to do about it. When you're in that frame of mind, it's hard to, as it were, reach out psychologically to another person and really make contact with them. Sure. 
sure. As a result of that, I think I found it very difficult. Also, she had a pretty bad temper. If she didn't get her own way, she would have tantrums. So I think that that meant that it was very hard for me to make really sensible healthy relationships with women for a very, very long time because I was frequently attracted to people who in some way or another were like my mother. And, and some psychiatrists say that, that you tend to go back to the original problem to try and fix it try to this fix it. time. Yeah. And I think there's something in that. And then at what point... I mean, that, that's, such a, that's such a fascinating point about just recreating childhood experiences yeah. and trying to... That, you, you know, that you're manifesting these in your adult life at what point did you feel conscious enough to go, okay, I recognize that I'm attracted to this type of relationship, but I'm not going to make this choice because I know that it always goes to the same place. Well, you finish up making it anywhere because it's, it's so complicated. You know, the third time I got married, I thought just thought I was not in love and the woman knew that I was not in love, but, you know, it was a perfectly friendly relationship and we kind of... Uh, rubbed along together quite well for a number of years, and in, in the end, it cost me twenty million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was being sensible. <laughs> then I met someone under the most romantic circumstances possible, which was basically we walked past each other in the street, and I did something I don't think I've ever done before. I stopped and turned round to look after her, and she'd done the same. And we're now married. Now, that's about as romantic as it gets, and this is the happiest I've ever been. So when you try to be sensible, price, 20 million, when you, <laughs> when you work on an absolute gut instinct, happiness. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very hard, but I was always very envious in a nice way of kids who said to me, my mother is my best friend. I remember. I, you know, I used to think that must be wonderful, uh, and, I, and uh, that's not the experience I had. But Dad was a good friend, and in America, I get an odd feeling that men seem to have more trouble with their dads than they do with their mums. I don't know. It's just from anecdotal from what people say. To me. I don't know. I had a good. Uh, I had a good relationship with my dad. I mean, this and these guys have heard this many times, but mm. this is the. One year anniversary of my dad's funeral ah. was is tomorrow, and uh, but we had a wonderful relationship, Love and I was it. very like I have a good relationship with both my parents. I don't know what are your what's what's your experience like with your parents, Jonah? Uh, you know, as I kind of started getting a little older, uh, I I learned to forgive them, but like I kind of like I like they were nice, but I resented the way they raised me, kind of thing. I was just well, like, so what are they? What do you think they did wrong? I I just don't think I think they. Uh, I think they kind of were. It was like I think it's selfish. It's like you know they like they they, they smoked pot and drank all the time. But like oh really? Yeah. But they they showed love, but like it was more of kind of just this like disconnect. And I kind of uh, uh, once I got a little older and I was I was like oh they were kids they were doing the best they could and it was kind of I think maybe growing up I was just like oh, I forgive them. And then, like, I've since started a new relationship kind of with... Well, they all... You also grew up in Hawaii. It's very easy to forgive there. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> You know, it, it's, it, it is... You know, I always talk about that one weird moment where you realize that your parents are not gods. Yeah. When you realize, yeah. like, oh, there's just a couple people and they fucked each other and then uh, <laughs> there I am. And, you know, like, I've done that before. I, I, I couldn't possibly be responsible for another human life, you know, yeah. but... But they, you know, they undertook the responsibility. And, and your parents in particular, 
Well, they didn't want to have children. They were much old. They were like, your dad was like 46 when you were born, right? I was 40, and they'd been married, they used to say, for 14 years, but I thought it out it was 13 years, but they decided not to have children. I think it was because my mother basically was emotionally rather like a child, and dad was a little bit like her dad. And I think they probably knew, or she knew, that if another child came across, if you've got a, already got a father and a daughter, where does the child mm. fit? Do you right. see what I mean? Right. So I think that she was uneasy about children, and Dad said something strange to me once. He said, he said, well, if you have children, then they only leave you. Oh. And I think that was because he was in the Far East when his mother died, and mm-hmm. he always felt he'd left her. Left her. There's a story in it about the, the, him finding a letter. I read her. it from 30 years before, right? Yeah, and, and he's, he's bursting into tears the only time I saw him doing that. So it's funny how these influences go on and on. I suddenly realized writing the book, they never talked about his mother, my parents. They never talked about it. Obviously, they realized it was such a sensitive subject that he couldn't handle it but it never occurred to me oh we never talk about that particular grandmother so writing the book is very interesting because you suddenly see little patterns in your life that you've really never seen before and it gets very interesting and also you recover bits of your life that you've totally forgotten you've really utterly forgotten certain events but as you remember yeah. one thing it remains something else because memory is associative and ever so slowly you, you, you shine more and more light into various corners of your life that you'd almost forgotten about it's a wonderful experience for me doing this because I didn't have the problem of abreacting negative emotions, partly because I've worked through it in therapy. Got it. And also because when you get to my age, you realize that very little really matters, mm-hmm. except people being happy. And that that's all to do with very simple things. It's not about making lots of money or becoming famous. I mean, it really isn't. That's often counterproductive. If people can have their fairly simple choices in life, I believe they can be very, very happy. And as a result, when I look back on the times when I was... Uh, full of angst and oh god I've been dumped again and I was so ineffectual with women and I did that sketch really embarrassingly badly and it's going to be on television on Tuesday all that stuff you realise now it just doesn't matter very much so although you can remember what was happening it's very hard to evoke the feelings of despair inadequacy that you were experiencing at the time yeah did you did you feel like your part of your relationship with your father was sort of bonding over the fact that there was this sort of this force in your household that you were both a little yes afraid of i think yes i think so and i think dad would uh, would not ever have said he was frightened because he was very thoughtful and that might have frightened me so he would always talk about my, my mother in, in a sort of humorous and gentle way and say, well, we have to keep the little woman on an even keel. <laughs> actually, I think he was, uh, you know, when she, when she had a tantrum, I think it frightened the shit out of him because it was fascinating. Well, as I say in the book, I mean, when she became a- angry, she was so filled by rage that there was no more space in her skin for anything uh, that was her. Uh, in, in other words, it felt as almost as though somebody else had, had, had entered her. The the power of rage over her was so great. So I have two two follow up questions to that. Even though this is not an interrogation, uh, where were you the night of October fourth? No, the first one is when um, 
If, 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 if in today's society, do you think your mother would have been better off because we are an openly therapeutic yeah, culture? I think she'd have been much better off. Because, I mean, you see, once I started to see a therapist, she was really quite shocked. And she said, but, I mean, you only go to see a therapist if you're mad. You're not mad, are you? And it was extraordinary, the, the sense of prejudice. There was a line down the middle. It was fine to have a physical illness, you know? That was fine. That was not your fault. The idea of psychosomatic illness, unheard of. Mm -hmm. But if there was anything wrong with you mentally, then you sort of fell into the loony category. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you should go and say a psychiatrist and probably be in a home. But So there was no understanding that we're all on this spectrum between, uh, when I wrote the book with the psychiatrist, about 20% of the population are very healthy. About 20% are really very unhealthy. And then everyone in the middle, the 60% in the middle, is arranged across a spectrum. So this is, uh, I hope this isn't an insensitive question. I, I, want, I want to know where it comes from. You know, my dad always had this saying that, my dad would say like, yeah, I fucked up a lot in my life. My dad, he's married five times and he, and he would go, but I would never, I wouldn't change anything because it got me to this point and you're mm. here and everything's mm. away. So I just feel like, so. Well, I know that feeling. I know what you're talking about. For example, because my second marriage was not a happy one. Uh, she was a wonderful girl. She was very beautiful. She was very talented. She spoke and wrote exquisite English. But she was bipolar and alcoholic. And that was not a happy period. But I wouldn't expunge that relationship for anything because I have my daughter Camilla out of that. Sure. You see what I mean? Yes. And several of my friends said to me, uh, my closest friends said four weeks into the relationship, he said, you have to get out of this. And I thought about it, but then I wouldn't have Camilla. Right. Uh, at the same time, there are some things I did. I think it was very unfortunate that Alice Faye, my third, put a lot of pressure, pressure on me to get married. And I thought at the time, well, it matters a lot to her and it doesn't matter to me, so that you know, it will make her happy. But because of that and getting, therefore, into what the Californians define le illegally as a long marriage, that cost me $20,000. Now, I was perfectly happy to give her ten. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Right. Although she'd never brought any income in or, right. or had any assets or investments or, or anything like that. But but 20, I, I'm very... If I could have that one back, I could have been for the last 10 years doing exactly what I wanted to do instead of literally trotting around the globe, going on stage every night to do a one-man show right. to earn these millions, which are just handed over to her. So oh, I yeah, 20 million, right. It was a waste of time. Right. It was a waste of my time going on stage and saying what I said the night before just in order to acquire money to give to someone else. Right. See? So I regret that. Because you were essentially a prisoner of the... It was almost like there was a sort of weird prison without bars where it's like, well, I have to get up and tap dance or... Yeah, you've got to... You've got to... Because otherwise you go to prison, basically, if you don't pay. You know, they, they can uh, seize your assets, but if you just marry somebody you love very much, you don't want that to happen. So you just have to keep it, and it wasted a lot of my life. So that I, that I regret. And I regret, uh, I think, one uh, movie. I regret for doing Fierce Creatures with the same cast that I used for... 
Fish Called Wonder because it sent the wrong message to the audience that it was going to be like Fish Called Wonder. It was an attempt to do a completely different type of, of comedy, a kind of family comedy that kids could see with the parents. Um, and, and those are the two that immediately uh, immediately stick out. And then I suppose there was all the, the days and hours that I spent pursuing beautiful women. <laughs> <laughs> Not getting very far. Uh, that's probably a bit of a waste of time, but it was at least it, it, it kept me alert. <laughs> and all, all the things that you thought would sort of fill the holes and all the... Is that, is that what that was I about? I think at the deepest level, if you really want to know, I think the deepest level, I always wanted to be loved by a woman. Mm-hmm. I think you would think I was after that experience and at the age of 70 I've, I've finally got it and that's changed me too. You see, I think if you stay open to things you just go on changing. The worst thing in the world is to start thinking that you kind of know what the score is. Oh, I know about that. I understand. Well, moment you do that you close down and get old. You know, you've just got to say, but we, we don't really know anything about anything, I think. I think nobody knows, particularly technology people, don't realize what the limits of science are. Or maybe they do, because they're very interested in fantasy, aren't they? Yeah. And so, we definitely like it when, when science and fantasy start to cross over. Yes, yes, that's great. And I, you see, I, I was with a group of, for a number of years that met every, every year, and we used to dis, uh, discuss the possibility of survival. And these were all academics, so mostly psychologists, a couple of sociologists, a couple of uh, psychotherapists, but they were discussing quite seriously um, whether there's a possibility of survival and we eventually produced a book called Irreducible Mind and knowing how smart this audience is if anybody's got those kind of interests read Irreducible Mind because all the evidence for something going on after death is there now I, don't, I think the mistake is to start trying to think what it is that goes on but I'm pretty damn sure something happens and I think that's one of the reasons why I think when I'm told I'm dying, I'm sure, I'm sure I should be very frightened at the time. But I think a little bit of me will also be interested. <laughs> <laughs> just for, for research purposes. Well just, well, just to think, well, what happens now? Which is altogether, I think, more interesting than the idea that it's a hundred-foot drop onto the concrete, you know. Right. <laughs> it's a, the question that I was poking at a bit earlier was... Would you, knowing where your life has gone, seeing that now you've met someone that you love, knowing that you have Camilla, knowing that you, I mean, literally influenced multiple generations of people. I know, it's hard to take that on when you just I know. Think, you know what I mean? Because I didn't invent a cure for cancer. No, you no, didn't. I, you know, you see what I'm saying? I, I know it's not a cure for cancer, but it, but it, it's, a, it's a cure for, I mean, it's a, it's a, it was a way for people to live happier. Like, it was... It may not be, you know, it, you know, it's not like winning the Nobel Prize. I get that, but it's also like changing people's lives in a way that they can cope with things and showing people the possibilities. And and also because humor helps you deal with the horrible shit that you cannot face. I could never have faced a parent death if I did not have comedy to process it in some way. Oh, yeah, and yeah. for people who yeah. don't have that gene, like you have, you like they can vicariously process things. So I think. 
it's incredibly not to you know and not to put too much pressure on you, but it's really important. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I wouldn't have agreed with you very much ten years ago. I always thought it was over overemphasized, and there was a lot of stuff I didn't really get. And I think the experience at the O2 taught me something. It taught me that I'd not understood the relationship between us and our audience because there they were, sixteen thousand of them, and it was like the happiest party ever. Everybody in the room, sixteen thousand people were happy and they weren't disliking anyone you know what I mean they weren't grouping together in order to attack another group they were just having a good time and I thought to myself maybe entertainers do have an important role we give we give people pleasure and put them in a better mood and that helps them to cope with Python I think there's something else because once you've realized as I now know how subjective people's sense of humor is you realize that people who like Python are drawn together because it's the same kind of worldview they they sense that it's all not as serious and organized as we thought when we were kids or we were told when we were kids and then we're in our teens and we see Python and it sort of rouses this feeling of Maybe it doesn't all matter. Maybe it is all a bit. And I love the fact one person said to me at the end of the first series of Monty Python, he said, what I love about Python, he says, I cannot watch the news after. (laughs) (laughs) That catches what I think is special about Python. That's why I think people who meet each other discover they both like Python. Then they're on the same wavelength. It's a sort of a litmus test. It's a a community. And certainly for me... You know, I, I grew up in a pre-internet era, yes. which is very difficult to imagine, even though it was, you know, in the, just in the 80s. But, you know, the experience of... Because uh, Python, I think we got it on PBS here in the States, and I think they ran it on MTV in the 80s for a while, too. They did, you're quite right, but it started in Dallas, of all places, a PBS station in Dallas, and I think it was 74 or 75. Howard, my assistant, well, no, 74. 74. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, for us... You know, growing up in this small little cluster of nerds who were essentially the, you know, just like all the trimmed fat off the social meat of our school <laughs> and just sort of thrown into this corner. You know, we that was very much an escape and very much a bonding thing for us and very much an experience that we felt like on a very deep level that we knew something very special that the rest of the stupid mouth-breathing, right. drooling kids didn't have. That's and right. that we, so, you know, saying me, me, me or doing that, it was... Basically, code yes. for us, That's you right. know, much in the, you know, the, almost like when the, the Christians were being persecuted, you know, thousands of years ago, and it's like, oh, they have these little symbols that show, okay, you're in the club, you know, yeah. like we were this sort of persecuted side group that had, <laughs> and that was part of our secret language. So I think it was very important to our identity, and certainly very important for us having a sense of community and seeing, like you said, that there was something uh, greater out there. I don't know why it took me so long to see that it was valuable, because I remember even Jenny saying to me, don't you see, you know what you've done is so useful. And I, it was a bit of me that used to say, well, I don't really feel it is. But then at the at the 010, I watched it, and then I had an experience about four weeks ago. I was at an English talk show, and Neil Diamond was there, and they started singing, the audience started singing Sweet Caroline. And I just looked at them, and I just thought, this is good. Yeah. People are happy. They're enjoying each other's company. There's a feeling of mellowness in the air. They like Neil Diamond. He's a very attractive guy. <laughs> and I thought, this is good stuff, you know? And I thought, this is important. Sure, but if you're hard on yourself, and you're certainly, um, you know, if you're someone who's, 
oh, but this is just a thing I do. It's not important. It's not like you, you would never, you know, it sounds like the way that you processed information at the time. You would never have allowed yourself to admit that. I think that's right. I think I always felt a little bit embarrassed by it. I was very happy to make people laugh because it's a lovely feeling. You feel very good when you make people laugh. You feel terrible when you fail. It's an awful feeling of humiliation to be knocking yourself out trying to be funny and nobody laughs. It's just dreadful. But when it works, it's very good, and I could always accept that. But it never, it never, sent, uh, never seemed to me that what I was doing was in some strange way important. Mm-hmm. You know? And then I began to see that the world is such a mess as I think you guys know. It's such a complete cock-up. And it's never going to be a rational place because all the people in charge are the people who seek power. Who are almost by definition assholes. (laughs) They use the power for their own purposes, not to make things better. There's a few exceptions, but not many. And you realise there's no chance. And people... There's a guy at uh, Cornell, where I'm a phony professor, called David Dunning, and he's discovered, I love this, that in order to know how good you are at something requires the same skills or aptitudes as it does to be good at that thing. <laughs> so the corollary is hilarious, which is that if you know good at something, you lack exactly the skills that you need to know you know <laughs> Now that's hilarious, but it explains so much that there's so many people out there who think they know what they're talking about and they're not intelligent to know that they don't. Sure. They're not intelligent enough to know that they don't. And I think once you do that, maybe you let go of an idea that you can make society a great deal better. I think you can improve things here and there, but I don't think they usually last very long. I think they're essential. You cannot invent a system that the humans won't fuck up. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You so know. once you realize what a mess it is, we're all laughing about it together. You, when you realize that, you begin to think, well, maybe the best thing to do is to try and make people or do something to make people happy and yeah. you cook them good food or make them laugh or do a good play or, you know? If you were to go back, if you were to go back and watch old sketches or when people quote sketches back to you, is there anything that kind of sticks in your head where you go, Fuck, I know you're saying you like that, but I just wasn't really, you know, like there was one piece of that that kind of like... That wasn't right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a particular moment in uh, Faulty Towers when a moose head falls on top of me and it's being cued too late. And you can see that I'm waiting for it. And that, you know, <laughs> that bothers me. We didn't have time to reshoot it. You know, that kind of thing bothers me. And occasionally there's, I don't know, it's more just stupid lines that come to me. Like, do you know the crunchy frog thing mm-hmm. with yes. the chocolates and the guy, the hygiene squad come and ask him about these disgusting chocolates? And he says, what's this one, spring surprise? And he says, well, you bite into it and steal bolts and spring out and lacerate your cheeks. <laughs> and the, the hygiene squad officer says, where's the pleasure in that? And that line often pops into my mind when I'm talking about things like mountaineering, you know. <laughs> where's the pleasure? 
pleasure. And I said to Jenny recently, you know, what we have to do now is we have to figure out very clearly what we love doing, what makes us happy, and we must do more of it. And we must figure out what we don't like doing, and that doesn't make us happy, and do less of it. Well, that is a very complex idea. <laughs> but you know we don't do it, do we? No. And you I was, see what I mean? We don't look at the simple. No, exactly. We, we who were we talking? Oh, we were talking to... We were, I was doing a podcast yesterday with someone, and this idea came about... It's like, it's so interesting that people, rather than just seeking what makes them happy, go, well, I have to do this and this and this and this, right. and then I will be happy. Yeah, and right. then you kind of get yourself into this perpetual motion machine where you're ni- the happiness is this carrot on the end of a stick. That's right. And then at a certain point, you're like, okay, I'm doing all this shit that I've... But now I'm not... What the fuck? And then that melts people down even more because the thing doesn't cure them. Because everything in our society is telling us to do things like acquire goods, buy a new car, and all these things that put pressure on you financially and don't really make you any happy. Well, that's why it was good that you made the choice to give away $20 million. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, my favorite charity. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Vanity Fair did a quiz with me and uh, one of their questions was, what is your greatest extravagance? And I said, my latest ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's what's so... I mean, it's... I. When you're uh, a comedy entity where people, you know, I feel like you can get away with a lot more. But then also, is it weird that sometimes you feel like, yeah, but they don't really know me. Like, they see this this one dimension of a guy who's just about comedy and, you know. I think it's so much a question of what they know you from, you see. I wrote two books with a psychiatrist, a very fine psychiatrist and I learned a lot from him and I said I think we should get some of your ideas out there because there's lots of people who don't need therapy who'd still benefit from the ideas and this is where self-help books were very rare in England you know there were always a lot here but there and and so that's what we did we just decided to go out and, and, and put these ideas out here and I forgot what the question was. No it was just the idea of uh is it weird that people just know you as sort of a one-dimensional oh, yeah. thing? Not- Sorry. So yeah. people who know me from those books, you see, approach me and talk to me, but quite differently from people who know me from Forty Towers and people who know me from Marty Python. And in England, particularly in the press, they want to diminish. They diminish everyone, so sure. I don't take it personally, but they want to diminish the achievements. So they always try to create the impression that I'm really... that Basil Forty was not just a great comic creation, but it was easy because that's who I am. Do you see what I mean? He's not really clever or talented or funny. He's just like Basil Fawlty. Right. You see what I mean? So these papers, the Daily Mail, try to create this impression so the people who read the Daily Mail have no idea what I'm like. Sure. And they hated the, uh, the book. I mean, there were rude remarks about the Daily Mail, but it, but this book is an attempt to say to someone that if you like my comedy and you're interested to know how I got there and was what sort of a guy I was as I got to make good comedy, then this is this is the book. It just talks about all the influences, and some people like that, and other people think it's boring, which is fine. I mean, if they're not interested in my comedy, they're not going to be interested in my childhood. Why should they be? Yeah, but I think it's also, I mean, to anyone who's a fan of, I think if anyone's a true fan, yeah. they would want to know. They probably would, and, 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 and people like to laugh, and I think there's a lot of very funny jokes in the book. Yeah. But again, if you look at the British reviews, there's no mention of the humor. And you think, well, how, how could they have read it 
and not seen that some of it was funny. It's very bizarre. So you find that everybody's got their own view of you. You see what I mean? Of course. And you have to talk to people for a time before you sort of, oh, he thinks that I'm like this. Because the, 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 the Monty Python fans used to think we were just a bit crazy. And they thought we rewrote the show on drugs. <laughs> uh, you know, and that we were just having a great time and ad-libbing all the time. The whole thing was very, very carefully written. We were all writers before performers. So everyone's got some quite wrong ideas, but if they, if they read this book, they'll understand Python and how it worked as a group very well, although there's only a certain amount in here. Right, and then, but do you feel like people kind of understand now what the group dynamics were, or do you feel like that's... Is that important for people to know, or is it not really? Well, if they want to know, I mean, that's up to them. I mean, I know that a lot of the biographies I've read have been of people that I thought were funny. I don't read many biographies, but I've read Noel Coward, I've read uh, Marx Brothers, I've read W.C. Fields, I've uh, George Burns. You know, I've often read biographies of people because I was really curious about their lives because they something about the fact they made me laugh so much and so there must be people out there who feel that and there are others who just say well I don't like your shows fine I'm not saying they're funny for everyone I know how subjective humor is I know that lots of people don't think my shows are funny Faulty Towers in particular there's people who find them embarrassing I got a nice email from a fellow who was comparing his prep school, that's 8 to 13 year old experiences with the ones I describe in the book because he was at the same school and he was saying he thought it was very accurate what I was saying but he got on to, to, to Basil Fawlty and he said I'm afraid I was never able to laugh at him because I found him so grotesque <laughs> well, other people find him hilarious so it's all very subjective and I can always accept that what is strange about some of the negative reviews like the Wall Street Journal which is written as far as I could see by a failed folk singer. I mean, why would they, why would they ask a failed folk singer? You know what I mean? They could have got somebody who had a sense of humour or wrote well. I mean, <laughs> it's so crazy, but if you, when, when people um, just don't connect, that's fine. I don't mind. I don't mind them saying they didn't think it was funny. I don't mind them saying that they thought it was boring. That's fair. That's what they felt. But when they get nasty about it, then you think, well... You know, I wasn't a child molester. Right. You know, I was a comedian who made some people laugh. You think, what are they getting nasty about? I don't think it's, you know, I, I, I think a lot of times they're, when I, when I feel like they overwrite reviews, mm -hmm. it's like, you're just trying to show people that you know clever words. Like, it's not, it's, that's more about them than I think yeah. it is about the service of. But they're this much is what more generous in this country. You see, in England, I think they're all basically envious. You know, they want to be uh, journalists and then they finish up doing nothing but writing about people who've done things. I think, to me, as an outsider, and I could be totally wrong, but it, I think it's, um, I think that there's an analogous experience with. When David Blaine decided to start doing public stunts in in London and suspended himself in a glass box, I think over the Thames, and then the Brits basically would just drunkenly hit golf balls at him while he was up there. I think it feels to me that there's an idea of like, and by the way, they were right to do that. Oh, but I think there's an idea of like, hey, that guy's sticking his head up there. Get back down here, you know. Like I don't think it. I think it's a. What nationality is Blaine? Um, uh, He's American. American. 
He's Alpha Centauran. I don't know where he's from. He's just easy. Is he? Is he <laughs> a reason I asked he's that created is, from mist. When <laughs> I was in Australia, they were all telling me about the tall poppy syndrome. Yes. You know? Yes. You've got to cut that. And then, and then in Holland, three weeks ago, they were saying the same to me. They, I said, I get such wonderful, warm receptions. And they, and they said, that's because you're not Dutch. <laughs> so here the Dutch people get a very critical time but if people come in from outside Holland then we welcome them with up and up America is very unusual because it welcomes people from, from outside but you're also generous to people in America who have had success. You know, you like the idea of success. In England, I think it's just like the tall poppy. If they see someone that's getting a little bit up to you or thinks they're full of themselves, you know, then they have to cut them down. I think the trouble with journalists is they can't do anything else. Sure. You know, they, they have no real talent, 99% of them. And here they are dealing every day with people that they feel they're vastly superior to intellectually, who are much more successful than they are. And that was... That was What's the word? Needle them a lot. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, it, the the review, whatever that is. No, but that's another. The people, the people who the people who are fans, viewers, are fans. Are like no one, no one gives a shit about that stuff. No, no, I know they yeah. don't. But I, but I get interested in things I don't understand. Sure. It's like uh, social media. At my age, you know, because you said it sort of all changed in the eighties. Well, you could imagine. Well, I wrote this book with a propelling pencil made by. A paper mate, a little um, yellow plastic propelling pencil with an Indian rubber on one end. Right. And I wrote it in an exercise book. I mean, that's hilarious. But <laughs> I felt I had a greater con- control and a greater connection with the book than I would have done if I'd done it on a screen. And also, if I want to see what I wrote two pages before, I know exactly where it is on the spot. <laughs> you see what I mean? I don't have to scroll back, which I always find difficult. But that's, a, that's about as anti-technology as you can get here. <laughs> but I'm, uh, and I've been left out, but I don't, the reason I don't get a lot of the social network is I cannot imagine literally why anyone would want to be on Facebook. It's like, I don't get it. It's like the example I always give is some people dress up in latex rubber to become sexually excited. (laughs) And I understand what latex, I know what dressing up is, I know what sexually excited is, but the whole thing, I don't get it. It's the same with Facebook. Why would you run your own gossip column where you you announce that you're in Whole Foods and you just bought some coffee? (laughs) Why? I just don't get it. Well, a lot of it, I think, has to do with distraction. People want to be distracted at all times so they don't have to... Are they distracting themselves? Yeah. They're distracting themselves and then also, you know, I think it's this hyperactive sense of uh, desire for significance and community yes, and attention yes. and you know the internet yes. the internet social media f- makes you feel like you're doing something even though you're not necessarily doing anything and it also makes you feel like you know I mean like, you mean I, I, you, you could feel I, I I wrote several things on my my um, uh, Facebook yeah so today. I did something so it was today. a sense of achievement that's very interesting well here's also, also it's quantified uh, attention it's like it is. it's like you wonder in your day to day if people even think yeah. about you you put something on Facebook, and then you, like you say, oh, four people clicked like. That means there's four people that had a moment today where they thought. Yeah. But there's there's a significance. I mean, I, I worked at a radio. I, I did radio in the '90s and then in the 1900s, and the, and I worked from midnight to five, which oh. no one ever really. I mean, it's like they didn't even track numbers in those hours. But for a period of a few months, at like two o'clock every morning that I was working, this woman would call. 
Um, uh, I called her the wet nurse because she basically would say, she told me she was a nurse and she would get out of the tub and get into her bed and she would call me every time I was on the air and go, okay, I just got out of the tub, I'm getting into bed now. And that was it. There was no, <laughs> there was no other purpose. Hold the front page. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hang on, break in the emergency yeah. broadcast system. But, but what I realized is that, for whatever reason, she had a need to let someone yeah, know, yeah, and she yeah. knew that I was up, and I was going to have to answer the phone at the radio station. She just wanted to let someone know so that she felt yeah. some connection yeah, okay. that yeah. she was important, you know? And so I think that's what a lot of it is. It's basically, I mean, you know, I think... I think people are addicted to outrage, and I think they're addicted to it because we are addicted to the idea of being significant. Like, we need to feel significant. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. This, this was such... It feeds on so many of the human insecurities that we have that I, com I really do understand why it's such a... Do you mean outrage about people using the wrong word? Well, just about anything. Just like jumping on an outrage train. We're like, oh, yeah, fuck that guy! You know, it's yeah. just that kind Making of... Making significance. Because I think that the, the, the celebrity culture... I know it's always been around. I, mean, I think Walter Winchell started it all, didn't he, in the 20s. So it's always been around. People always wanted to talk about fame people um, and I, I again it's it's to me an absolutely extraordinary thing that people could be so interested in people who are on television I can understand them being interested in Theodore Roosevelt you know sure but the idea of being so who's a sitcom actor is so extraordinary to me because what happened was I made a very good set of programs called The Human Face and I oh, realised yeah. that, that, that what really fucked it all up was the invention of the camera because until then if your face was known anywhere it was because you'd done something significant you were the Duke of Wellington you were Florence Nightingale you know, started a hospital in the Crimea during the Crimea War uh, you know, you, or you'd written a book or great poetry and you, your face was familiar because you were you really accomplished something the moment you have the camera you can capture someone's face and easily, so easily that they don't have to have done anything significant but we somehow still think that people whose faces we know must be important, like it's hardwired sure. into us. Do you see what I mean? So everyone is fascinated by uh, Brad Pitt and, and, and Angelina Jolie. Well, because the camera usually lands on the most fuckable ones. Well, <laughs> I suppose that's right. Yeah, but after you look at them once or twice, you think, yeah, they're very attractive. And, you know, then you want to say, well, what's so interesting about them? You know, when there were truly interesting things going on and people out there. And again, I think it's terribly unhealthy because it means that the average Joe or Jill who's not going to become a star is going to feel, oh, I wish I'd been famous. I wish I was very, very rich. Whereas 60 years ago, people could have a good, useful life. They could have friends. They could do their job well. They could have fun and they could be satisfied. Yeah. And now this is, it's, it's now as though you're saying, no, you have no significance unless you're famous. And I think that is poisonous. Of course. Yes. I mean, and, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what the long-term effects are. I mean, we just haven't yeah. had social media. I mean, this, this section of humanity just hasn't been around long enough for us to really understand what the long-term no, effects no, are going to be. No, I mean, no, do people sure. become less empathetic? I mean, does it affect, because we're interacting with machines, what, how, does, how do we physically evolve? Like, yeah. what's the next... You know, it's kind of a... We just won't know for a few generations. Yeah. What, now, there's a wonderful book called Technopoly, 
Have you come across this? No. It's been out some time. It's written by a guy called Neil Postman, like mailman, mm -hmm. Postman. And he was a professor at a um, New York um, uh, college, communications professor, and sadly died. I knew nothing about him because he deliberately never gave out any biographical um, information. But the book Technopoly is all about how we always find a new technology and we get excited because of all the things it can do for us and we finish up serving it. Do you see what mm -hmm. I mean? Yes. I was talking about somebody recently about a hotel system and, and I said, but this is insane. Why do you do this and this and not just simply that? And they said, well, our computers can't do that. Yeah, yeah. So we're being run by things that are supposed to to help us run things. Not only that, but even in just the way that you machines force you to interact with machines as though you were a machine. You know, a lot of times you're hunched over and you're basically just, I mean, so even in just, even in the physical world, not even just the, from, from the, the emotional side, yeah. it, it, machines force you to, you know, I mean, it's, it forces you to be a machine, basically. Yeah, that's right. Um, what's your, just sort of jumping topics a little bit, what, what's your favorite thing that you've ever done? Oh, you mean professional? Yeah. What's your favorite? What's your oh, favorite? Well, I made a little, uh, a little um, documentary about lemurs in, in Madagascar yeah. once, and there was something about that that I thought was was very warm and mellow, and I liked that, liked that a lot, and it enabled me to make a few sort of jokes I hadn't made before. And it was a, it was something completely fresh. But there were things I did, uh, you know, when I felt that I was being funny, three or four of the Forty Towers, and Life of Brian in particular was a happy experience, but then Meaning of Life for me was not a happy experience. Really? I never thought it was a proper movie. We'd gone back to making sketches again. I found the process of shooting it very, very boring. I don't know why. Um, I just didn't enjoy it very much. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't know if this film will be very good. I also disagree with the choice of material. I thought we had some much better mature material that was not included in the film and I was outvoted so I didn't feel quite in the film do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. I had one foot in one foot out whereas Life of Brian's are the best experiences I ever had I'm sure a lot of people have told you this but I went I went to All Boys Catholic School, took Latin for four years and my Latin professor oh, really? showed us the scene with the on the side of the which was such an amazing way yeah, to learn that was a good joke though, just to learn Latin so where are we? Let's just look time-wise. I just we're, want to make sure we know. For how much time do we have? A couple minutes? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Five minutes. Yeah. Great. So a couple more. Couple catch, more. catch a quiz. Catch a quiz. <laughs> uh, when a video that I watch at least once a year is you delivering the eulogy at Graham Chapman's funeral. Mm. How, what was the debate? Like, how did you decide this is the way this has to be done. Was it therapeutic for you, or did you feel like, well, this is more of a tribute to Graham and his sense of humor, or Much was it... more to do with Graham, yes. I mean, uh, I, I, I suppose I thought, I, wanted, I have to get up and say something. You know, there was no way of avoiding it. But I spent a lot of time thinking what I wanted to say, because the thing about Graham was he was an extraordinary mixture, as you gather, you know, if you read the book. So anyway, um, there's, the, he, was, uh, he was in wonderful in some ways, and he was a bit awful in some ways, and he was certainly not 
very reliable in a lot of ways, and he slightly took advantage of people, uh, but he could be terribly amusing. So, you know, like most people, he was a, a mixture, and then I didn't want to start talking at his memorial service in a, in, a, in a mood that, like the one I just created by saying that, which was that a slight, slightly negative thought. So I said, well, how can I talk about this in a, in a positive way? And then I thought, well, how would Graham want me to talk about it? And once I started to think along those lines, it became fairly obvious to me the sort of thing I was going to have to do and to say, you know. But I started off by saying, since I wrote the parrot sketch with him, he is no more, he has ceased to be, which I found touching, yeah, very touching. But after that, I thought that he would, he, the, the phrase I like in that was how he, he hated mindless good taste. <laughs> and that was that was what pushed me in the direction of being naughty. So if you now that you're well, you know this is this is going back a bit, and again, don't ask this if you want to. What was your first? So coming out of this relationship, this home, this relationship that you had to with your family, with your mom. Yeah. What was your first girlfriend like? What was what was the experience of losing your virginity like at that point? Did you did anyone talk to you about anything, or it was no, just not like really? It was uh, it was more a question of uh, not having any idea of what one was doing. You know whether to, I didn't know whether it was all right to take a girl's hand or under what circumstance. I didn't just didn't know any of that stuff. So in that case, you just have to learn by trial and experience, which means a lot of the time you're feeling very awkward because you don't know if if you just got it right or not, you see what I mean? Yeah. And if this is sort of the question to kind of land on, I think knowing that you've had this amazing life, like I was saying earlier, you know, your daughter, comedy, affecting people, a lot of that obviously came from creating emotional armor from this unstable childhood. I think, I imagine. Or do you think your family was... It's very was... hard, you know, sometimes you read these things and you think it's just so much more complicated than that. I mean, I had a strong sense of humour and early on I, I can see certain things made me laugh, but I don't know if those were my, in my genes or to do with my, my bringing up. I can see certain things were to do with my mother's sense of humour and my dad's, but I might have had that sense of humour anyway. One just doesn't know where it comes from. So would you have traded the life that you've led if it meant that you had a more normal, stable relationship with your family and your mom? Oh, no, no. I was perfectly happy with the start I got. And I think that, as the psychologists often say, maternal deprivation can push people towards, towards achievement. If you look at some of the greatest artists and scientists of, uh, of Western civilization, and you will find that they had very difficult relationships with yeah. with their mothers. So I, I don't mind any of that. It's just, I think, as my life went on, my regrets are that I didn't spend enough time doing things I was really interested in. I was almost too dutiful a breadwinner. Right. Whereas Terry Jones, I admire Terry, because he's always off doing the next thing that interests him. And I've always spent a lot of time making sure 
uh, that there was enough money, and then usually finishing up giving it to someone. <laughs> there you go. I've stockpiled all these nuts. There yes, go there you go. Now you go and have a good time and spend <laughs> So I regret that I've not spent more time doing things that I enjoy, and I hope if I've spared a few more years that I'll now be able to spend time doing that. Like I would love to do a, a documentary series on, on what religion would be if the churches hadn't fucked it up. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that would be really interesting. I think it would be interesting to do a series of very rich people and say to them, why do you want far more money than you could ever spend? What, what is it that makes you do this? Because I think it's fascinating. I think it's power and significance. It's the same thing. You it's know? pathetic. Well, of course it is, but it's, you know, it's just this... I guess it's just that overinflated survival thing that's like, well, now I have to be... Because my genes will be... Like, I, who knows? Who knows? But if you had the opportunity, yeah, I, that would be amazing. Yeah, I would love to do those things, and I'd always use humor to say them. Of course. Because if you can get people to laugh at points you're making, then they're accepting your points, so it's very persuasive humor. I'd like to have time to do that, and a little more time to think about what, what, why we're on the planet, because I do think there's something else going on that isn't... Uh, I read slightly odd books... Um, there's um, a book by Co- called Cosmos and Psyche at the moment, and I've gone blank on the philosopher's name, but he say why the materialist reductionist view of the universe almost certainly isn't true. But he's coming up with another suggestion, which is not a sort of spiritual suggestion, but it's a new way of looking at it. That interests me because I think it's so funny that we have no idea what we're doing here, really. No, and then all, and but but we essentially. The landscape of our lives, everything that we paper our lives with, tries to give us this false sense of like, we got it, we That's know what right. we're doing. That's Man, right. we got it, you know, and we don't. And we allow ourselves to be distracted. The best joke I ever wrote was in Meaning of Life, and Terry Gilliam fucked it up because the camera was racing around. And when the camera's <laughs> racing around, people don't hear the dialogue. And the guy basically, there was a committee who set out to, to, to discuss the meaning of life, and he said there's two things about meaning of life. First of all, people aren't wearing enough hats. <laughs> the second is, he said, that there are uh, disciplines where people can begin to understand some of the mysteries of the world, but the sad thing is that people are always distracted by other things so that they never really focus on what's important. And there's a pause... And one of the guys said, what was that thing about hats? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great joke. No one's ever laughed at it because Terry's got the camera racing around so people don't hear what was said. Well, All right, I gotta go on. Please to... go. This was amazing. Thank you fun, so it's much. It's easy when you talk the truth, isn't it? Well, yeah. it is, and also just a sort of natural curiosity for you know people and things and yeah. the, the stuff that we all wonder about. So thank you, John. Well, I thoroughly the, the enjoyed book is it. Called so anyway, so much. Um, which is the perfect. By the way, as you're doing interviews, yeah. The title of your book is the perfect way to break an awkward silence because you would naturally go. So anyway, yes, and then it actually does promote the book. Good to see you. Thank you so much. It was good fun. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.